a rare but deadly disease hidden in the air you breathe. And I'm in full-blown panic mode. I've worked my whole life to get my PGA Tour card, and now I've got to go see a hand surgeon. Nearly two-thirds of cases in the United States contracted in Arizona. And actually, if you wanted to draw a really fine point on this, 50% of all U.S. infections occur in Maricopa County. The damage long-lasting. They will never recover. The scarring is permanent. 2021 off to a historic year for cases. So we're now actually ahead of the numbers year to date for 2021 than we were in the highest year on record for Arizona. You may be surprised by what you don't know about Valley Fever. You're listening to a KOLD News 13 original podcast, Danger in the Dust. Welcome to Danger in the Dust, a KOLD original podcast. I'm Brooke Wagner, an anchor and reporter at KOLD News 13. And I'm Erin Christensen, chief meteorologist at KOLD News 13. We are so glad you could join us for this podcast. It's important to us because this is a big deal in this part of the country. If you've never heard of valley fever, though, you're certainly not alone. Most of us who transplanted here to the American Southwest hadn't heard about it either until either we talked to someone who had had it or someone in our family got sick or we got sick with it and were impacted ourselves and sometimes not even then. But until you get tested, you don't always know. Valley fever infects more than 11,000 people every year in Arizona alone. The name makes it sound a little exotic, maybe a little scary. Certainly, it can be for some folks. Valley fever is caused by a fungus that grows in the southwestern U.S., parts of California, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, and in most recently, it's turned up in Washington state. The highest concentration, though, is right here in Arizona, which is part of the reason why we are doing this podcast. We are kind of the epicenter here. We want to make sure you're aware of the symptoms so you can protect yourself and your family so you can get treatment. Be aware when you go to the doctor and can ask the right questions and perhaps even help the Valley Fever Center for Excellence, which is right here at the U of A in Tucson, and they are working toward a vaccine. So we're going to be sharing some of our personal experiences with Valley Fever here. And Erin, I want you to talk a little bit about the symptoms because they're not the same for everyone. And you can get this even if you're just passing through the area. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's a fungus. So there are spores that just become airborne, but it lives in the dirt. So if you're breathing air in and around Arizona, chances are you're breathing in some of that dirt and potentially some of those spores. And of course, you know, it's really dangerous for people who are perhaps just visiting or have just moved here and they haven't built up some sort of immunity to it. Uh, those folks do tend to get hit the hardest. Um, and they also don't know, you know, what to look for, what to ask for, how to avoid it, that sort of thing. But because it's in the soil, you know, even just driving through a construction zone with your windows down, uh, you know, you can inhale the spores. Lots of athletes who exercise outdoors are often pretty prone to getting it because they're taking deep breaths and they're outside. So if they're out on a windy day, you know, the dust is being inhaled. And a lot of times, you know, we talk about dogs. This impacts dogs a lot because they dig in the dirt. Since it's in the soil, 
and the soil is airborne here in the desert. We don't have a lot of rain to kind of, you know, weigh down the soil. Um, you know, it's just kind of floating around the air. So basically just breathing, you know, puts you at risk. Well, and that's part of what makes it so problematic is that you can say to try to protect yourself from added risk, like try not to be digging in dust (laughs) and and deep gardening and things like that. But the truth is you can be at risk just breathing the air, even indoors, if the spores get in and you don't have proper air filtration. So it's really hard to tell people, oh, avoid these risky behaviors. I mean, (laughs) you need a special professional mask if you're, say, a construction worker working in Arizona and you're aware of this kind of thing, um, if you can't avoid that, being at that site, you can wear an N95 mask and get some protection, but they don't even know if that's enough. True. The, the spores are pretty small, right? Very small. In fact, I was told that the masks, similar to what you know, a lot of us have been used to wearing with the coronavirus, wouldn't even help because the spores are so tiny, they would make it through one of those. Now, the N95s, maybe, but is it really realistic to always wear one of those, especially if you're outdoors and hiking or biking or, you know, that might be kind of tough to do too. So roughly half, let's just, for the sake of simplicity, let's just say half of people, a little more than half, don't get any symptoms at all. Um, But the others, it can be very serious and it can be a lifelong illness that kind of plagues you. And you're going to tell your whole story a little later. Mm -hmm. But can you kind of describe how you knew something was wrong and how long it, it took, what kind of symptoms you had Because I know that you didn't get a clear-cut diagnosis. No, and I'm kind of one of the odd ducks, you know. My my situation was definitely unique. Most people notice being tired first. Um, You know, I've had people describe to me symptoms that kind of feel like you've got mono. Just really, really tired, not motivated to even get up, do anything. And then, of course, there's the coughing. What's interesting is that very few people end up with a fever, even though it's huh. called valley fever. Right, that's confusing. <laughs> but that is, that is definitely one of the symptoms, obviously, at, you know, and coughing is really the biggest one. Um, you know, in my particular case, I didn't, I noticed being really tired for a while. And then I had what I described as an asthma attack. The closest thing I could think of, um, you know, description wise was that I had had an asthma attack. Really tough time breathing, like extraordinarily, like I, I was breathing through a straw and couldn't do anything to kind of relieve that. But just over the course of a few days that went away and then I went about my business and it wasn't until the coughing became so heavy that it actually caused a hole in my lung that really forced me to say, okay, something something serious is, is really going on here. And this brings up another really good reason why we're doing this podcast because if, if I said to you, oh, you woke up and you feel really, really tired and fatigued, you have a cough, you feel under the weather, and <laughs> you feel achy, which are all symptoms of valley fever, well, what else does that sound like? <laughs> right. And, I mean, not just COVID, but a million other things. So sure. if you came to visit family in Arizona, and then you went back home to Minnesota, 
a doctor there might not have this friend of mine. I mean, not even the best doctors don't always have a reference point for valley fever. So that's why we're here kind of telling you that this is a possibility. There's also a potential for a rash. You can get this in your skin. You can get it in your bones, your brain. I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but these things can happen. Mm-hmm. And and not everybody gets the more milder symptoms before it does become disseminated. And that's really the tricky, tricky cases to kind of diagnose. You know, a, a lot of doctors here, they come in, they hear cough, they hear lethargy, and they, they may think, okay, well, let's just go ahead and test you for it. But if you don't have those symptoms that would automatically set off, you know, some sort of red flag with a doctor and it goes undetected, and for whatever reason, you have a compromised immune system, it doesn't fight it off naturally, like what generally happens, you mentioned in almost 50% of the cases, is it can become disseminated and it can make its way into your spinal column. It can make its way into your brain. And at that point, you know, sometimes it can be fatal. Very few cases, of course, that's very rare, but it does happen and it has happened here. And it certainly can change your lifestyle for years to come uh, and just take away your energy and just kind of zap your energy. And so we are lucky to have the preeminent uh, research center for valley fever here. But even so, because this is not a worldwide issue, it really is a regional, um, this is something where you may want to send a letter. You may want to get in touch with your representatives and, and try to get something Uh, try to get funding, try to get more recognition for what they're trying to do here, because there is a canine vaccine, which is going to come to market, they hope, uh, coming out of um, research done here at U of A in the next year or so, in 2022, they hope, which would be very exciting. It may parlay into human use, but they need funds to make that happen. And, you know, this is, here's another thing. Uh, you could live here for five years and they'll say, oh, well, then you're, you know, you, you're over. You've either had it and now you won't get it again. But the truth is the dollars just aren't there to figure out what's 100% true. We just don't have all those facts yet. And it's different for different people. I had, like you, heard, you know, if you've been here for five, if you're a native, first of all, you're, you know, you kind of build up immunity by the time you're five years old. Um, If you're new here, but you've been here, say, for at least five years, you too have built up an immunity. I was here, let's see, that would have been well over 15 years before I contracted it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes, yes, that's the case, but... There's just, this is such a strange, unique sort of uh, infection slash disease where it presents itself differently in different people. The way to diagnose it is different in different people. You're, you know, the best way to treat it is different in different people. So, you know, it, it, it's so tough and it, and, and it fascinates me. You know, I had heard of it before I was diagnosed, but then of course, once I was diagnosed, all I wanted to do was try and read and read and read about it. And there wasn't a lot of out there. That's why I think this podcast is so important. But not only that, there's a lot of confusing, borderline conflicting 
information out there. So, you know, that's why I'm really glad that we were able to, you know, talk to the experts here. And Dr. Galgiani, of course, is world renowned for his work with Valley Fever. So, you know, we go straight to the source here. Yes. And he's awesome. He's a really cool dude. He's dedicated his life to this. And we'll be talking to him very soon, I, I think, in our next episode, actually. But um, so, but you mentioned treatment. Let's go back to how it's diagnosed which is through a blood test, and then not only one blood test, but then you kind of continue to get your blood tested? So there are a few ways um, that you can actually um, go about being tested. The blood test is the most common, and there is a skin test. If, there, if a doctor sees that you have a sore that's just not healing, not going away, they can test it for valley fever, um, and they do. And then, of course, there's the lung x-ray. A lot of doctors will immediately take a look at your lungs and sometimes you'll have an x-ray for something else down the road and the doctor will say to you, hey, did you know you had valley fever? Because like I can see all this, the scars on your lungs. So really it's a blood test because they measure the level of titers that are in your blood. Um, you know, the tricky part about that is that false negatives are extraordinarily common. So although you may get tested once, twice, three times, and it comes back negative for valley fever, you may still have it. But at that point, you know, it's going to be a lot tougher to really try to, to figure that out because that's kind of step one. Step two is, is looking at your lungs. So early treatment is important. Yeah, huge. Um, and the treatment is kind of hinky too because... <laughs> In, for some people, I mean, they say that the antifungal treatment is really for more severe cases, but I, th I think that it is doled out relatively frequently, and it is no picnic. The treatment itself, those that fluconazole, am I saying it right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is uh, not necessarily an easy pill to swallow, figuratively or literally. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Most doctors, depending upon how acute your case is, they would rather have you try to fight it off on your own. Your immune system just kind of takes care of it. Lots of people, you know, can fight it off with no problem. That's how so many of us are kind of walking around, have had it. We didn't even know we had it because we've got a healthy immune system and it just takes care of it. But there are some cases where the titers are so high that the doctors want to give you a little bit of a boost, right? And that's when you take the, the antifungal, the fluconazole. And it just depends on how bad your case is and what they feel as though, you know, the, the dosage that you need to be on. Uh, but certainly it has a lot of side effects. I mean, I took fluconazole even after, um, you know, I had it the the lobe of my lung surgically removed. We're kind of jumping ahead here. But the fluconazole I was on for a year 800 milligrams a day, I believe, just to try to kill, make sure the, the rest of the spores were gone. What are some of the side effects? Some of the side effects I had, um, loss of hair, my hair was falling out in big chunks, um, like my eyelashes, my eyebrows, I had pretty much lost almost all of my eyelashes. Sheesh. I did have a rash from the fluconazole, kind of a traveling rash, you know, it would pop up here one day, somewhere else the next kind of thing. Um, and then you get really thirsty. It kind of dries you out, I guess. And so, you know, I was always thirsty, always, you know, drinking uh, a bunch of water. But for me, um, you know, having the, the skin rashes and the loss of hair was probably the worst. And it does kind of make you a little tired. 
Lovely. <laughs> so, well, we'll I, I have so many questions for you, um, but I want to I want to get into this now since since we talked a little bit about Aaron's story and we also have Aaron's and my boss Janelle Schreiner is here and she also uh, was very recently impacted and is a recent transplant coming here from Louisiana um, but I, I will preface that by saying I feel like my experience is so is so typical that I'll, I will tell you what how I learned about this to sort of give you a baseline for what I think kind of happens to most people or a general sort of um, average kind of person's story. We moved here about four years ago and my son and I went exploring and we were deep down in the wash and it was very dusty down there. And I'm certain that we were primo candidates for valley fever, but I had never heard of it. And then uh, Chris, my son, got pretty sick. I mean, really couldn't breathe well. And I took him to two different doctors. He tested negative, which Aaron just said there were a lot of false negatives. Um, and they did a chest x-ray and he, they told him he had pneumonia. Now they did the chest x-ray, but didn't mention Valley fever and said they tested him for it. And I was like, Valley fever, okay, well, thanks for testing for whatever that is. But, um, uh, but I did eventually look into it and he did get better. He did recover from the pneumonia and, and, you know, everything turned out fine, luckily. But when I came to work, and I also hadn't really been feeling myself either, but I've been kind of concentrating on him, but I felt I had this new job and I was like, oh gosh, I'm dragging so much. I got to do a good job here. I have to, you know, <laughs> prove that they didn't make a mistake bringing me here, but I just feel terrible. Um, and one of the guys who worked here at the time said, oh, well, I had it. And... Um, my lungs are still all scarred and I was out of work for two months. And he told me this big story. I was like, and this is Valley fever. So this is what, and that's when it was after the fact. And at that point I said, okay, that's clearly what was happening with Chris because it's, this is right on target with everything that, um, that our coworker was talking about. So now I really think not only did he have it, um, and I hope that he doesn't have any residual impact from it. But And we even ended up getting his tonsils and adenoids removed because he's continued to have a hard time breathing. But um, but I think, yeah, I probably had it too. And now hopefully that means I won't get it again. But I really wish that <laughs> that I had been better informed. I thought, boy, there should be some kind of like flyer they put in the mail when you move in or something like that so hello podcast yeah you I get a bumper I, sticker i don't think the chamber of commerce is gonna come knocking on your door brooke and just what? say oh, excuse me Why, have you heard of this valley fever thing that you know so your situation obviously was very different so starting mm -hmm. from the beginning how do you think you contracted or, or inhaled these spores truthfully i at first i had no idea um, I do exercise outdoors or did quite a bit, you know, I'm a big hiker. I like to run. Um, and, and I prefer exercise outdoors actually, because I kind of like the sun and I like the heat mm -hmm. and that's why I moved to Arizona and I love the mountains and I want to be in the mountains. So I go hiking all the time. Um, 
But, you know, in hindsight, after I really started thinking about this, because I had doctors, they were a little stymied when I was in the hospital um, as to, you know, how could somebody so young, so healthy have, you know, this big mass in their lung of at the time they didn't really know what it was. And, and once they started to, to try to hone in on valley fever without still at this point a proper diagnosis, they said, you know, have you been on any archaeological digs? No. Wow. Um, you know, how are you doing yard work? Or, you know, are you having a, a, a big construction project in your backyard? You're having landscapers come. You leave your windows open. You know, they were trying to find something that, oh, yeah, okay, then we really should look into valley fever. Nothing. I couldn't think of anything like that. Uh, in hindsight, it wasn't until I read an article about some folks in Bakersfield, California, um, contracting valley fever through a car they had purchased somewhere else in the U.S. Or actually, I think it was someone in New York. That's what it was. Someone in New York purchased a car from a, a gentleman in Bakersfield and deduced that he contracted valley fever because he had never actually been there. The car was shipped over to him from the car. So some way, shape, or form, it, it was in the vents. Wow. And this light bulb went off in my head because it was just about a year earlier I purchased a car up in Phoenix after one of the largest dust storms it was so large that it's classified as an aboob you know miles high miles wide takes over the entire city um, had actually gone through the lot which my car had been sitting in and the, the sales gentleman heard I was a meteorologist and, you know, he started talking, oh, yeah, we had this huge dust storm. You should have seen the dust on these oh. cars. And the vents, he said, you know, all that dust just went in the cars and, yeah, we had to have them sprayed down. Well, they spray them down, but they're not going to detail and, you know, clean out all the vents and the cars and everything. So I to this day, I don't really know. But my gut kind of tells me that's where I contracted it. It makes sense. And for reference, Bakersfield is another kind of bellwether. It's another place like Tucson where, and actually they have become very politically active in Bakersfield, getting their reps to, to work on funding for Valley Fever. So they are kind of a sister city, sister in arms mm -hmm. with this whole yes. Valley Fever situation. Okay. So what happened next? Oh, you know, uh, the first symptom I had, I was just really tired. I'd get up, take a shower, get ready to go into work, and I couldn't move. I would have to go back to bed and sleep for another couple of hours. I was just that tired. But again, I didn't really think a whole lot of it. You know, we're busy people. We're running around. I, I didn't really make much of that whatsoever. And then after that, a short time after that, uh, maybe a couple months, six months or so, I had what I described as an asthma attack, which really scared me because I have never in my life had one. And they put me on inhalers, that sort of thing. Never really seemed to help a whole lot. And then almost a year later, because this, this went on for years. A year later, I just started coughing like crazy, just coughing, coughing, coughing. And it was so bad that I could feel fluttering in my lungs every time I would breathe. So I went to the doctor. They, you know, I had had several valley fever tests done over the course of this time. My allergists, my general practitioners, they all did them. They all came back negative. So they just, you know, thought it was asthma, perhaps, that I had just somehow grown into in my, you know, 30s. And then I finally, 
um, honest to goodness, just couldn't breathe and I was coughing so bad, went to my general practitioner. They did an x-ray of my lungs and they said, good news is you don't have valley fever. Your lungs clear as a bell. Bad news, you have a collapsed lung, but not to worry. We'll admit you to the hospital. You'll be in there maybe one night too. They'll put in a chest valve. You know, it'll help to uh, reinflate your lung. You know, you'll be out in 24 hours, maybe 48 max. So did they think the collapsed lung was caused by these asthma, so-called asthma attacks? What, you don't just get a collapsed lung, right? They thought that I had just been coughing so uh, much, perhaps from the bronchitis or something like that. And at the time, it was a really small, um, like a, a pin-sized, you know, hole in my lung. It wasn't big at this point. And so they said it was, you know, partially collapsed, not that big of a deal. Chest valve will take care of it. I mean, there's a certain point of collapse that a chest valve is not going to take care of. And then over the next couple of days, they put the chest valve in and that didn't help. I was still coughing, coughing, coughing. And then about two, three days into the hospital, I had a completely collapsed lung. And so at that point they said, okay, well, maybe this isn't bronchitis. They did another valley fever test and yet again, it came back negative. Did another lung x-ray. Then again, they also said lungs look awesome. But they did a CT scan. The CT scan revealed a mass of something in my lung the size of a fist. And they said, we don't know what this is. It's either lung cancer or it's valley fever, but either way it has to come out. And we're not going to know until we pretty much cut you open and take it out. So the doctor, after, you know, I had the thoracotomy, low back to me, I, I did, I lost about a third to two thirds of my right lung, said, you know, I can tell you it's valley fever by looking at it, but we have to send it off to a laboratory, you know, real fancy lab or whatever, and make sure just to get the proper diagnosis. So that's what they did. And a couple of weeks later, they figured out that's exactly what it was. But he said it had the look of valley fever when he cut me open, so. Because it was a big mass of spores, basically. Right, yeah. Uh, he said that it looks like an orange peel, like a white orange peel, or at least my case did. I don't know, kind of bumpy, really thick, like a rind, he said, that had, had grown in the upper right uh, lobe of my right lung. Oh my goodness. And yeah. for those of you listening who maybe don't live here in Tucson or don't know Erin. Erin is a very active, fit, vibrant woman and a meteorologist who's like super, um, has mastered her craft. And, you know, so this is not someone who just was kind of blindly going through life. <laughs> like, I mean, this is this just shows that, that it can really get serious, um, even for someone who's being vigilant about their health. And um, so what about now? Do you feel like you do have residual effects? My lung capacity is just never going to come back. I did. Um, so I, I was in the hospital for two weeks. I was actually off work about two months. And part of my recovery, I was, you know, I did all these exercises with this breathing apparatus, you know, to try to reinflate your lung as much as possible. They said, oh, it'll come back. And it just, it just hasn't, you know, I take a deep breath. And I could feel my left lung completely inflates. My right one goes, you know, it just kind of stops at a certain point. And, and it, I've just come to terms with the fact that's the way it's always going to be. But they still encourage me to do cardio. But I tell you what, I think twice before I go running outside. Sure. I, I, especially if it's a windy day, 
even though I don't think I could get it again. You know, that thought always just is like running in the back of your head. I drive through a construction site and if my windows are even cracked a little bit, I immediately, you know, roll them up. I'm, I'm not going to put myself at that kind of risk again. Well, it certainly gives you pause after going through all of that turmoil. Yeah. I'm so glad you're okay. My goodness. Thank you. What a story it is. Thank you. But um, as a meteorologist, it certainly, you know, gives you a whole different um, experience and background when you talk about windstorms and boots. Oh, sure. You talk about these dust storms and, you know, sometimes people will go out of their way, just like with lightning, to go out and check it out because they think it looks so cool. And it's very fascinating, but people don't understand what's in the dust. You know, you just think, eh, a little bit of dirt's sure. not going to kill me. You know, what's dust going to do? And, um, but even dust devils, you know, the smaller, you uh-huh. know, little swirls of the dust that we have here in the desert all the time, um, they can be carrying it too. And a lot of folks think those are kind of neat. I, I, I run and hide now, you uh-huh. know, of course, if there's, well, not really run and hide, but <laughs> because of my job, but you're on the air. Yes, yeah. I am on the air, but I'm in a safe building, but I would not be somebody who would, you know, want to be out anywhere near that. Sure. No, I'm I'm with you. I I love being outside as well. And I I mean, I never would have thought about it. I never would. I would have thought, oh, that's neat. I wouldn't go out in the middle of it. But certainly I never knew that there was something in the dust, a danger in the dust that could hurt my family and me. And Janelle, when you moved here, mm-hmm. this happened relatively quickly quick. after your move. Do you know how you contracted it? Well, I think I was the person that didn't know it was in the dust in the dust storm um, because I moved here in April of last year in 2020, You know, during the pandemic. Um, and I believe that I contracted it probably around August um, during a dust storm. Um, I thought it was rain. I accidentally stepped outside to go grab something that I didn't want it to fly away off my patio. Was hit in the face with dust, but didn't really know too much about Tucson to know to not, you know, or to avoid that. Um, but yeah, that's what I think happened. That with makes me. sense. Yeah. But it it turned into quite a journey for you. And obviously this is at the height of COVID, right? Yes. So I went, you know, I, one day, um, it was right after uh, we'd gotten some flu shots at work. And it was like two days later, I just felt the worst that I've ever felt. I got a fever and I, unlike a lot of people, had a fever of 102.5 for five or six days. Um, I didn't really have a sore throat. I had a cough, but I had a horrible headache, probably the worst headache I've ever had. And a couple days into it, I went to urgent care. And of course, you know, their first thought is, well, it's COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, had probably through this course of this week while we tried to figure everything out, um, I think six or seven COVID tests. a flu test. They tested me for strep throat. Um, they gave me two different antibiotics. They gave me a steroid. They gave me an inhaler. They really had no idea. And I went back to this urgent care multiple times. And they told me, you know, because it was really, I mean, our hospitals were at capacity with COVID patients at this time. And they said, don't go to the hospital. If you feel bad, come back to us, but don't go to the hospital. And that was really kind of scary because of how bad I yes. felt. Um, but it wasn't until I went to um, a, a different urgent care 
um, that was a little bit closer to my house that somebody said, well, you know what, let me do this valley fever test. Um, because my boss, my GM had said, maybe you have valley fever. And I said, I don't know what that is, but maybe. Um, and so I went back to a different urgent care. They did the test. It was inconclusive the first time. Um, it wasn't until I came back to work and probably three weeks later through more blood tests and, and work that it, we discovered that it was valley fever. And then I was, um, you know, sent over to, to Banner to, you know, their infectious disease doctors over there. And at that point, were you feeling any better? Was your body fighting no. it anymore? No, I mean, I felt better than that week because that okay. would be a hard week to, yeah, you know, to not repeat. recover. Yeah, exactly. But I just felt really tired. You know, I re- really tired. The, the fever went away. The, you know, the, the major headache went away. Um, but really, really tired, um, unexplainably. So you, you went over to Banner and in what was their course of action? So, um, because of the headaches that I had, they were really concerned at first that I might need to have a spinal tap done for, uh, to test for that fungal, um, meningitis, um, which was terrifying. Um, but it wasn't until the doctors, um, a couple of them kind of grouped, discussed, they said, you know what, when was the last time you had this headache? They kind of worked through it and decided, you know, let's let's get some more blood work done first before we take all these drastic actions. So we did, and my titers were high, um, and it wasn't at a level that they said, you know, you're gonna fight this off at your own. It was just, um, let's go ahead and, and get you started. And so I started the fluconazole too. What was your, what has your, cause you, are you still taking it? No, I've you're been off, off of it, it, I think for two months. Okay, so mm-hmm. what was your experience with that drug and the side effects? Um, Erin was on a much higher dose than me, um, so I didn't have some of those side effects that she had. I did have the rash, um, and it it did travel, you know, arm one day, leg one day. It just was very, I was very um, itchy. Um, I, the fatigue never went away, um, I, but I had the thirst. I will say, I was so thirsty, um, and you could not be caught in the car without a bottle of water because you just felt like you were in the Sahara and needed it urgently. Um, but those were the big things. I think it just, it didn't make you feel good. You had to go in regularly to get your, you know, blood work done for kidneys and liver um, function, just because it is tough on your organs. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it, I was only on it for um, three and a half months. And how are you feeling now? Much better. I, I still think the fatigue lingers, um, but overall, oh my gosh. I'm probably 95%, I would say. It's interesting that it really echoes the long hauler syndrome that we've talked about with COVID, where we don't really know. We don't really have the answers. And I'm sure after time passes, you're not really sure if you're feeling that much more fatigued than you were before, because you don't have an exact baseline for feelings like that. It's it's hard to tell. And sometimes your body, you get used to things. You know, you get used to operating at a mm-hmm. level that... A year ago, if you put yourself in your body now, you'd say, whoa, but you just kind of go on and you, you know, you live and you do the best you can. So yeah, you're right. There's no baseline. It's interesting that the boss was right. I mean, it's interesting that as soon as you say, oh, I'm kind of having these symptoms, someone in your life may be the one to say, well, have you checked for valley fever and listen to that person 
because they could very well be right if you live here. So I, I, I hope those anecdotes help you kind of understand what can happen. We kind of have three different levels of issues with this that sort of illustrate how this illness works in all different mysterious ways. Um, Aaron mentioned that animals can be infected, and that's going to be kind of a separate conversation. We have some guests coming up who have really done some amazing work. Um, but it is very serious in dogs, just to, just to set that up a little bit. It can be very, very serious. 60% of dogs who contract it get ill. So that is something to watch for in your pet as well. Our pets are our families too. And and so if you see these symptoms and you see them kind of not being themselves and people pay thousands and thousands of dollars to help get their pets better. So we are going to address that as well. Um, a few little facts as, as we wrap things up here just from Arizona in case you're wondering, well, who gets it? Um, there are more at-risk groups for the seriousness of impact, and that's African-Americans, people of Filipino descent, pregnant women, people on medications or with autoimmune issues. All of those folks are at higher risk for getting particularly ill. But I want to make sure I note that if, if for anyone who is expecting, it's not contagious from mother to baby. Uh, it, it's not a contagious illness. This is not something someone can catch from you. And as far as we know, um, it does not impact a fetus or an unborn child. But um, age group 55 to 74, as you might expect, generally tend to have more serious uh, impact from valley fever. And it is more women than men, but not by much, 55% to 45%. And that's all coming from the Arizona Department of Health Services. So. I, I, does anyone have anyone, anything else they want to? I, I did want to also add that you don't have to live in one of these Valley Fever hotspots in order to contract it. Um, you know, even if you've just vacationed in one of these spots. My father contracted Valley Fever and, you know, he very rarely was ever out here for more than a week or two weeks at a time. And he contracted it, but didn't show any symptoms until, you know, well after he had gone back to, you know, my parents' home in, in Illinois and got lucky. The doctors there, you know, had heard of it. And he said, hey, you know, my daughter had this experience with it. Go ahead and test me. You know, they doubted that's what it was. But sure enough, lo and behold, that's what he had. So, I mean, you think about Arizona and how many tourists that we have. We've got some, one of the seven wonders of the world right here right. in the state. And the millions and millions of people who come out here, you know, every year to vacation. You know, think about it. You know, you, you too might end up having contracted it. I'm not saying that, you know, that's... That's certainly by no means a, a guarantee, but you don't necessarily have to live here to, you know, contract it. I'm glad you mentioned that story about your dad and good on those doctors for knowing their stuff and thinking this kind of, especially, it, did it happen during times of, of COVID that he was no, diagnosed? No, it was before no, that. This was years before Okay, mm -hmm. but still, that's terrific that they knew to think about that. And we have these cases popping up in Washington state that, people don't really know how that's happening maybe it's the cars like you mentioned maybe there were you know maybe they took a big haul of, of vehicles up there or the climate 
Oh, yeah. Weather's getting weather, warmer. Weather could have an impact on it. Our climate is changing. And, you know, that, that's coming up when we talk to Dr. Galgiani. But it's it, that is uh, speaking to your expertise that this is part of the reason we have this. And it, the doctor's going to discuss how they they found, was it a mammoth who, who mm-hmm. had... Um, fossilized effects of the spores not fossilized spores but they could see what they had done to this animal thousands of years ago but it's the it's the winters that kill off um spores like this which is why we have it here it's not like hey it's we like it in this area of the country and we're just going to be endemic here no it it really is because of our climate and because we have milder winters. So what happens when other places begin to have milder winters too? It's a great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all, it remains to be seen as does the future of research on valley fever, but things are moving along in the right direction and we will be exploring that in an upcoming episode. Next time on Danger in the Dust, we're talking to director of the Valley Fever Center for Excellence, Dr. John Galgiani, who has a passion for research in the treatment of valley fever. He has some interesting and all new things to say about valley fever and how cases are trending in 2021, plus decades in the making, brand new information about a vaccine. Be sure to check out episode two of Danger in the Dust, a KOLD News 13 original podcast.